Chapter 3 Flight In October of 1942, the movie Flying Tigers was showing in theaters all over the country. R.G. and Agnes caught a showing of it at the Appalachian Theater in downtown Boone, North Carolina, the only theater for miles, on one of their trips back to Watauga. Girls from the nearby Appalachian Teachers College were gathered in a flock of white skirts and braided hair under the gleaming mint-green facade of the theater. R.G. put his arm around Agnes's waist, navigating them through the crowd, and paid at the window, 75 cents for two adult tickets and a bucket of popcorn. Inside the theater, they settled into their seats as the lights dimmed. The movie starred John Wayne, who played the leader of a ragtag group of independent volunteer pilots flying combat missions against Japan in the weeks after the surprise Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, which had finally catapulted the United States into the war. Flying Tigers was what they called a flag-waver film, the kind of movie that would get people punching their armrests, stomping the floor, spilling their popcorn. The U.S. had been formally at war with Germany and Japan for nearly a year when the movie premiered, which also happened to be the same week R.G. and Agnes had planned for their wedding. All over the country, boys were enlisting or already training to fight. R.G. had been deferred from the draft because of his job as a county agent. The federal government had wanted him and the other agents to remain temporarily stateside to ensure the durability of the agricultural supply chain. But in the coming weeks, that would likely change. They expected 90 days, tops. Sitting in the theater with her fiancé, watching those airplanes get ripped apart by bullets, the debris of scattered popcorn all around her. Agnes knew it was only a matter of time. They held the wedding ceremony a few days later in Agnes's hometown at the McGackiesville Methodist Church at 4 p.m. Saturday, October 10, 1942. Agnes wore a simple but elegant green woolen crepe dress and a beautiful corsage of orchid and stephanotis flowers, which she'd made herself. R.G., keeping it simple, wore his regular coat and tie. After the ceremony, they gathered for the reception at Agnes's childhood home. A small crowd in the living room, eating homemade cake for which everyone had donated ration cards in order to get enough sugar. It was mostly just Agnes's side of the family and some old school friends of hers. R.G., the mountain boy, was outnumbered. Only his mother and one of his sisters had been able to make it. The rest of his family was too scattered across the country. R.G. didn't blame them for not making it to the wedding. It wasn't as if he'd given them a whole lot of notice ahead of time. Besides, there was a war going on. Everyone was getting married. Till death do us part could be right around the bend. The honeymoon began right away, R.G. and Agnes setting off on a trip deeper south. He'd saved up enough ration cards for the gas. They planned to stay for a spell in Charleston, South Carolina, then hop on a steamer in Savannah, Georgia, and travel by rail into Tampa, Florida, where R.G.'s baby brother Joe was stationed as a test pilot at the McDill Air Force Base. Driving down the back roads, they watched the mountains flatten, the landscape soften, and the loamy North Carolina soil lighten to a fine yellow sand that dusted the sides of the South Carolina roadway. Shacks, restaurants, and general stores leaned out from the overgrowth. Tin signs beckoned travelers to stop for the best Frogmore stew, oysters, and Hoppin' John, while inns advertised clean rooms. Palmetto trees spiked their palms out in the humid air like shaggy dogs. They'd entered the low country. With the windows down, the smell of the ocean lapped into the Pontiac, and they breathed it in. Charleston, when they arrived, was far livelier than they could have anticipated. The first thing they saw as they entered the city proper was a hulking boat crawling slowly along the coastline. They rolled down their windows to see over the side of the bridge. It looked to be some kind of party, 
Men were cheering on the ship, waving their arms, riding that great metal beast like a sedated whale as tugboats towed it gently along the waterway. Later in the day, Agnes and Argy learned from a native Charlestonian that what they'd seen had been a tank landing ship, one of a few that had just emerged from the Charleston Navy Yard. Those boys had been celebrating its departure. Charleston is a lovely old town, Agnes wrote her family, and we didn't have nearly enough time there. They would have needed weeks to savor the full breadth of the banquet before them. Everywhere they went in that lush port city, the atmosphere was excited and bloated by the war, as if all of Charleston had stuffed itself too quickly with the bounty of it all and was now suffering from indigestion. Military folks filled the streets, their vehicles honking and zooming all around. Older women stuffed into tight dresses sauntered like plump turkeys past skinny boys in loose-fitting uniforms. Advertisements along the streets warned people not to make long-distance phone calls so as not to hold up the lines for vital communications from war industry and military personnel. In that evening's edition of the Charleston News and Courier, an ad promoting the laxative capabilities of Kellogg's all-brand cereal ran with the unfortunate headline, Here's How I Licked Wartime Constipation. Agnes and R.G., dazed by the chaos of it all, tried countless places but couldn't for the life of them manage to get a hotel room. All the hotel space, they were informed, had been confiscated at the last minute for the war effort. They ended up finding a small room in one of the old colonial homes in the city's sequestered French quarter. It was worth it for the delay, Agnes wrote. We stayed in one of those lovely old homes you read about. The entire house was antique, high ceilings, and our room was just like a picture. A four-poster bed with a canopy and everything. Such luxury. By now it was late. The city was quieting down. Agnes opened the window in their room as the autumn breeze flapped the curtains, and she looked out at the narrow, cobbled streets below, the pastel homes the color of Easter eggs, palm trees chaperoning over the slanted townhome rooftops. It was easy to imagine they were back in Revolutionary War times. Small fires flickered in glass boxes at each doorway, casting warm shadows as night fell. The sound of clopping horse carriages lulled against the gentle roar of faraway engines. Beyond the rooftops was the ocean, and somewhere over the horizon, under the vastness of the stars, the same boat they'd seen earlier in the day was drifting far out to sea, carrying those boys to a place none of them should be going. Agnes closed the curtains. Tuesday night, we drove on to Savannah, Georgia, left our car there, and hopped on board the steamliner, went to bed, and woke up in Tampa, Florida, Agnes wrote to her family. You know, I've never ridden a train of that sort, much less slept in a Pullman. They felt like fancy rich folks as they stepped out of the train station in Tampa, only to be greeted by God's thunder from the sky above. Airplanes weaved and spiraled and sliced through clouds. It was all people could talk about on the streets of Tampa from the moment R.G. and Agnes began exploring the city. Every person they met, from small children to cane-hobbling old folk, seemed to be amateur aviation experts, what with the MacDill Air Force Base being so close by. It had become their local sports team, and they were all passionate fans. The locals could distinguish the smallest differences between one airplane type over another. At one point during R.G. and Agnes' exploration, a blind man walked by with his dog and, as if sensing they were tourists, stopped to explain the different airplanes by their unique sounds before tipping his hat and strolling off. The way he got along, you would never have guessed he was blind, Agnes later wrote. That night they got to see the Air Force Base for themselves. They met R.G.'s brother Joe and his young bride Jocelyn at the Officers Club, amidst a throng of pilots and cigarette smoke. Joe was exactly as Agnes had expected, 
charming, intelligent, and handsome in his pilot's uniform, looking like a young movie star. Still, if Joe had one blind spot, to use a pilot's term, it was his inability to fully see the girl clinging to his arm. No doubt Jocelyn was gorgeous, blonde and thin, bouncing and giggling like a schoolgirl. She radiated the youthful beauty of an MGM starlet. But Agnes remembered something RG had once told her, about how his sisters didn't care for Jocelyn much, and the longer the girl kept on rambling and interrupting the conversation, Agnes couldn't help but agree. But Joe was a pilot, after all. And what did pilots do? They painted pretty pinup girls on the sides of their airplanes. Evidently, he had a type. Gritting her teeth, Agnes nodded along to whatever the girl said. It was worth it, though, to see R.G. and his brother together. She hadn't gotten the chance to spend much time with his family, and watching him grin and talk up his little brother, she saw all the sweetness he usually kept hidden. John Wayne in that movie Flying Tigers... The way R.G. saw it, he had nothing on Joe, who flew the most amazing airplanes ever built, soaring the country into the future. Somewhere between the dessert and the check, R.G. told a story about how when Joe was just a little kid, he'd always liked going out on pony rides up the mountains. Joe was too young to ride a pony of his own, so R.G. would have him sit with him, Joe's arms wrapped around R.G.'s waist. Together they'd go all the way up to the mountain peaks, looking out at the soft ripples of the Blue Ridge. The whole skyline was there. And who knows, maybe that's what got Joe thinking about being a pilot in the first place, to see what lay beyond the horizon. Later that night, as they departed under the lamppost light, Agnes heard R.G. tell his little brother how proud he was of him, and she heard Joe congratulate his older brother on finally getting married, calling him an old man. The two shook hands and said they'd see each other real soon. They were still laughing and yelling back at each other as they went in different directions down the sidewalk. When they got back to their hotel... Agnes wrote to her sisters, Bob is sweeter each day, if such is possible. RG's draft notice arrived in the mail a few weeks after the honeymoon. They'd known it was coming, and yet the pace at which he was digested by the American military was still jarring. He was promptly sent to boot camp, then on to mechanic school, followed by gunnery school, where he was put to work teaching airmen how to operate the tail turret and two caliber mounted machine guns on the B-24 bomber. Part of his job was making sure his trainees could react quickly and effectively if something went wrong while they were up in the sky. It was all about assembling and disassembling, assembling and disassembling, looking for malfunctions, for things that weren't quite right, abnormalities that could lead to death in the sky. R.G. was serious about his job, and he drove his students hard. He told his boys he wanted them to know their weapons so well they could feel the malfunctions from touch alone, skin upon metal, the vibrations telling them what they needed to know. He didn't have much time to think about things back home. His father had gone back to Watauga to help look over the farm while he was gone, which was lucky since RG's job as an instructor took him from city to city as the need arose, often at no more than a day's notice. Agnes was able to follow along with him. They moved eight times in eight weeks. They had gotten used to barely even unpacking their suitcases when they reached a new destination. By the spring of 1943, they were living in Laredo, Texas. They'd gotten a small apartment with the help of the orderly room folks on base. Another lucky break, since most couples weren't able to live together. As far as things go, it wasn't so bad. R.G. got to eat dinner with Agnes every night. They shared the same bed, woke up each morning and had breakfast together. Then off he went to contribute to that day's war effort, kissing her goodbye like a salesman off to go hawk vacuum cleaners. Agnes was just glad to have R.G. still with her, and not overseas. 
Still, it wasn't exactly luxurious. And it didn't help their egos that RG's baby brother Joe and his wife Jocelyn were living in high cotton down in Tampa. Jocelyn wrote to Agnes from time to time, which was frustrating because Agnes felt obligated to respond, and the girls' letters were always a handful. We have a large home now with four bedrooms, so we'll have lots of room if y'all come to visit, Jocelyn said in her last letter, which was postmarked March 30th, 1943. What really peeved Agnes was the way Jocelyn tried to couch her bragging in faux humility. Joe got his promotion and a wonderful new job, Jocelyn wrote, before making sure to add, but he has so much responsibility and work, we never have any time together. As for the fancy new house, Jocelyn said, The house is so large and so much to take care of, and we always have so much company. As if the prospect of looking after a mansion full of wonderful friends was deserving of Agnes's sympathy. Then there was the big news, which Agnes delivered to RG that night by sliding him the letter over the dinner table. I'll let you in on our big secret, Jocelyn had written. But don't dare tell it to a soul as we still want it to be a secret. There'll be an addition to this branch of the family in October. We are so happy we can't even see straight. R.G. could only smile and shake his head, setting the letter aside. That's quite a sight about their addition, he told Agnes. I too am envious of them. Sure would be nice to live in Tampa if this war must go on. He bent over his dinner plate, fork and knife in hand, but then paused for a spell and looked up at Agnes. I'll be so glad when we can look forward to those little brats of our own, he told her. They were seated at the table on such a night, halfway through dinner, when there was a knock on the door. Visitors never showed up at this hour. R.G. pushed back his chair, stood and walked off to see who it was, while Agnes waited in the kitchen. All she could hear when the door opened were whispering voices. She waited more than a few minutes. When he didn't come back, she finally went to see what the matter was. Making her way down the hall, she saw the light coming in from the street through the doorway, glowing behind the silhouettes of two uniformed men who loomed on the porch, one with a hand placed on R.G.'s shoulder. The death notice was published in the next issue of the Watauga Democrat, April 15, 1943. First Lieutenant Joseph W. Shipley, son of Mr. and Mrs. W.E. Shipley and a native Watauguan, was killed last Saturday when a medium army bomber which he was piloting from McDill Field, Florida, crashed into Tampa Bay, about four miles offshore Saturday, killing, in addition to Lieutenant Shipley, the four other army officers who were passengers. The Army Public Relations Office, which announced the accident, did not give further details. What was so infuriating to RG was that this had been published in the paper as the official account. But just a few days later, when more information was released, it was revealed in the crash report that Joe hadn't been piloting the plane at all. He'd just been a passenger, the purpose of his presence on that airplane unknown to the family. The newspaper later published a correction. Young Mr. Shipley was not piloting the plane at the time of the crash, it is revealed. But the damage had been done. The second and only other update Argy's family ever got from the Army Public Relations Office said it had been a, quote, routine flight, just a few miles off the coast. A sunny day, clear skies, no explanation given for what had gone wrong, a routine flight, a supposedly routine malfunction. Somehow, the plane had dipped and then spiraled down into Tampa Bay, and Joe was lost under the waves. The crash had been on Saturday morning. They fished his body out of the bay Monday evening, nearly three full days bobbing in the water. The funeral was closed casket. The family hadn't been together in years, 
It was no good kind of homecoming. Agnes hadn't even met half of them. R.G. wore his Air Force uniform. Agnes, a somber dress, as they rode by train up north, passing into the outskirts of coal country, Virginia. The trees along the tracks were already thick with leaves, but here and there whole swaths of the forest had been cut away. In the wasteland, scaffolding and rows of identical shacks had arisen, and people wandered around in the smoggy air like scavengers. It was a miserable sight. Agnes could hardly believe her husband had spent his most formative years living in this stretch of country after his family had lost their farm in North Carolina. R.G. himself seemed so separate from it. His home was the mountains, and now he barely seemed to even register the environment they were passing through, as though it were a ghost he could no longer see. Her heart broke for him. What a disgrace it must have seemed that his baby brother should be laid to rest in this gray dirt and not the Blue Ridge. The church was packed when they arrived. All of Joe's old friends, teachers, schoolmates, and peers from high school were there. R.G.'s parents, Ed and Minnie Lee, sat side by side with them at the front. Agnes knew from what R.G. had told her that it was the first time his mother and father had seen each other in at least two years. The word divorce was never used, but R.G.'s mother had moved out of the log house in Virginia the moment Joe had left for college, and R.G.'s father was rarely there himself having taken on jobs with the federal government that kept him on the road as much as possible before he'd moved back to tend to Argy's farm in Watauga. But as Agnes took her seat beside Argy, she could sense Ed and Minnie Lee were closer than anyone else in the church in that moment, their grief as parents drawing them back together. Ed was silent, gripping his wife's hand for the first time in years, while Minnie Lee wept quietly into a handkerchief. Later, though... What Agnes would remember most about the funeral was Joe's widow, Jocelyn, who'd sat like stone all through the service. When people came up to offer their condolences to her, Jocelyn barely seemed to notice, her vacant eyes seeing nothing at all. Agnes wanted to reach out and hold the girl. As far as she knew, no one else in the church knew Jocelyn was pregnant. But they all found out about it a few months later, in the worst way. When Jocelyn went into sudden labor and gave birth to a severely premature baby girl who lived a few days and then died too. Jocelyn buried the little girl in a tiny casket on a hot summer day. No one heard from her after that. Jocelyn stopped answering letters, phone calls. There were no more exaggerated, enthusiastic stories from her. No more giggles or braggy letters. Only silence. Argy's mother tried reaching out countless times. She wrote letters and asked around if folks had heard from Jocelyn. But the girl had run off without warning. Not even her family could say where to. It was as if she, Joe, and their baby had never existed at all. As if the waves had washed them away. But Jocelyn came to haunt Agnes in the months to come. Because no matter how hard she tried to put it out of her head, that girl seemed like an omen of everything that could soon happen to her. Agnes learned she herself was pregnant in the summer of 1944, just as the war was about to reach its final bloody conclusion. And just before R.G. received word, he was being shipped out of the country. They were standing in their kitchen when he told her, in the small apartment they shared on an Air Force base in Baltimore, Maryland. It was autumn now, 1944. The trees that bordered the base were aflame with deep shades of red, burnt orange and dark yellow, thick as honey. When Agnes walked down the small roads during her afternoon errands, birds would streak above her head, flying in a V formation across the cool sky, 
migrating toward warmer weather like bomber squadrons toward Europe. They hadn't been here long, but Agnes had already begun looking at houses. R.G. had been assured he would be staying here for a long time, almost certainly until the end of the war. She and R.G. were expecting the baby in the coming year. In the past few weeks, Agnes had been overwhelmed with relief and gratitude that R.G. was being granted a chance to remain in the United States for good. They talked about pushing their baby in a carriage around the base, spending the rest of the war doing their part here, at home. And then, out of nowhere, I'm shipping out, he told her. Agnes stood by the wall in the dim kitchen light. Where are they sending you? Argy could only shake his head. I don't know. Everything about the news was so strange. A few hours earlier, his superiors had called him into a back office and said, You're shipping out. That was it. All he knew was that he'd been hand-selected for what they called a special mission. Not only did he have no idea where he was being sent, he also didn't know what he was being sent to do. And no one else on the base was going. Only him. Why? Agnes wanted to know. She felt nauseous again. The feeling had been churning within her more and more frequently. All these past few weeks, her stomach had been unsettled, as if she had known this news would be coming. But it was more than that. A chilly feeling spreading inside her. A cold heaviness that made her stop a few times a day and pause, standing still, feeling something detach and then reattach within her, as if something was about to fall apart for good. Now the nausea and the uncertainty seemed to swirl together. R.G. only shook his head. I don't know much, he said. It was somewhere overseas. That's all they would tell him. In the meanwhile, they'd said he should start packing up his things and say goodbye to his wife. They had hardly any time to prepare. Agnes called her parents to say she'd be moving back to Virginia. They went to the train station two days later, R.G. kissing her goodbye in his uniform. The last she saw of him, he was stepping onto the train, and then the train blew its whistle and began chugging away in the chilly October air, while the cold heaviness spread deeper within her. Once the train had disappeared, Agnes walked back by herself to finish packing up what was left in their apartment.